Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Very grateful for everybody with us in the building, as well as those of you who are watching online. So in October of 2009, uh, I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A friend of mine, a friend of the family, called me at 6 p.m. on the day of Game 2 of the World Series in the Bronx, telling me that he had seats. Now, there's different friends with different types of seats. This friend had, like, you-can't-pass-up-on-this-opportunity type of seats. The seats were so close that you get a separate entrance. The seats were so close that you could hear the baseball whizzing through the air before it hit the catcher's mitt. So when he called me at 6 p.m. telling me that the game starts in an hour, I have a ticket for you in Yankee Stadium for Game 2 of the World Series, which we won, uh, I ran out the door. Like, I kissed my wife. I didn't even finish telling her. I was like, I'll text you. And as I just, like, ran out the door, hopped on the train, and ran to the Bronx for the World Series. And it was one of the greatest nights of my life. One of the reasons I am sad this October is because the Yankees are at home watching other people play baseball. But there's no place on, on the planet like the Bronx in October for fall baseball. The crowd was electric. Every single pitch brought the oohs and the ahs, and it was one of the greatest nights of my life. Now, because that night was such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, like, I couldn't insist that it comes on my terms. Right? Like, if he would have invited me to watch the game at a restaurant, I would have been like, you can't call me an hour before and ask me to do that. I need, like, a week's notice to plan these things. But I knew that what he was offering me truly was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, all of us know this to be very true. The more valuable an opportunity is, the less we insist on it being on our own terms. So some of you uh, know what this feels like personally. You moved to New York to be an actor, to be on Broadway. You left the comforts of wherever you came from. You left family and friends to be huddled up in a small apartment chasing your dream. Now, you did not insist that Broadway comes to you because Broadway is an opportunity of a lifetime. To be on a show is a, is a life-altering um, uh, opportunity for actors. And so we know this to be true. So many of the restaurants that we go to, the better the restaurant, the less that they would change what's going on, what they do. If you go to like a, a Michelin star, award-class winning restaurant, sometimes on the menu it will tell you no substitutions. The chef won't change anything. Now that's very different than BK, have it your way. Fast food, they know that you can just customize it to whatever degree you want to because it's not something that's good. <laughs> they know it's not an opportunity of a lifetime, that's for sure. And so the more valuable an opportunity is, the less we insist on it being on our own terms. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Because for the past few weeks, we've been looking at a scripture in the Bible where Jesus offers us something. It is the opportunity of a lifetime. And I am concerned that we would hear Jesus' call to us to follow him as something that we can receive on our own terms. Now, the scripture comes from Luke 9 and 23. We've been in it for the last three weeks, and we'll be in it for a couple more weeks going forward. It says this, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to follow after me, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Let her deny herself. Take up their cross daily, and follow me. 
Now, the first two weeks, we looked at uh, different concepts in the first two parts of this verse. And we're going really slowly through this verse because I want to saturate our minds and our imagination with what Jesus says faithfully following him looks like. And so the first part, which is a crucial component that so many people miss, is this concept of desire. That the number one thing that God wants to grow in your life that will mature you is growing a desire to follow him. That's the first line in, the, in, in his command. If anyone desires, if anyone wants to follow me, what Jesus is calling you to is not a life of misery. It's a life of finding a real enjoyment, a, a deep fulfillment in Christ that would fuel you following him. He's not calling you to be a life, lifelong reluctant person who's saying, yes, my life is miserable, but I guess I have no other choice. He's calling us to nurture our desires and to see what desires have overpromised us in our life that have under-delivered. Last week, we talked about denial and what does it mean to deny yourself? And today, we're looking at the third part of the scripture of let him deny himself, and then this part today, take up his cross daily and follow me. So today, we're looking at what does it mean to be dedicated to Jesus, that every single day, you would take up your cross and you would follow him. Now, there is a difference between someone who does something as a hobby and someone who is dedicated to something. Uh, if you've ever been, ever been around like a, a real professional athlete who is like dedicated to what they do, it is much different than someone who just does it as a hobby. A few years ago at Renaissance, we had a woman at our church who won the Ironman race. Finishing an Ironman race is incredible. She won that joint. An Ironman race for the uninitiated is a two-mile swim, a hundred-mile bike ride, and then a full marathon, back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, no breaks. She won that joint. I remember talking to her about her workout routine, and she says every day she does a two-a-day except for Christmas, and she just does like one little small workout on Christmas. And being around her, I was like, there's people who say, oh, I work out. You don't work out. <laughs> you go to the gym and stare in the mirror. She works out. Now, one of the things that was really interesting about her is that since she was so dedicated to the sport of uh, triathlon, everything in her life oriented around that thing in the middle. And so uh, years ago, my wife and I, we were walking down a block on 8th, and we saw her with a bag of Levain cookies. And I was like, it's okay. Listen, we all get weak. We all get weak. We need cookies, man. Cookies are life. Let's do it. Let's go. And she said, oh, actually, this cookie is for the for after the race in five days. I was like, you got dedication on another level. You're going to have a Levain cookie just sitting, looking at you for days, and you're not going to touch it. So Jesus is not calling us to be hobbyists of him. He's calling us to be dedicated to him. And what that looks like is the daily process of picking up our cross and following him. So the mark of a disciple, according to Jesus, is that we would have a dedication to him. And listen, and we would have an openness in our life to his will unfolding in our lives. So much of our lives, though we may have the designation of a Christian, is marked by a closeness. We are closed to what Jesus wants for our life. We are closed to his will. And so in Luke 9, where the scripture is placed, Jesus had just fed the crowd. And there are thousands of people who have come to Jesus to get their bellies full. Jesus turns to this crowd, and he makes the distinguishing feature between a crowd and a disciple. 
Crowds come to Jesus to get their needs fulfilled. And once their needs are no longer met, they walk away. Now, I do want to be very clear. Jesus loved the people in the crowd. And if you find yourself identifying with the crowd more than a disciple, then know that Jesus loves you. In Matthew 9 and 36, Jesus, it says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so first and foremost, if you find yourself in this, then know that Jesus has compassion on you. But Jesus knew there was a difference between a crowd and a disciple. You know, one of the lessons I'm trying to teach my eight-year-old son right now is not everybody around you is with you. There's going to be a lot of people that come in your life. They're going to laugh. They're going to joke. They're going to be right next to you for a long time, but they are not with you. And when times get hard, you will see who was actually with you for you versus who just been around you because you brought good vibes into their life. So Jesus is not calling for you to have an association with him. He is not calling for you to be around him. He's calling for us to be with him, to follow him. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting, though, even as I look at my own life, the, first num- the only reason Jordan Rice came to Jesus was to get something. Y'all might be different than me. Y'all might be more holy than I am. I came to Jesus because I wanted him to make my life better. My life was, my life was chaotic. I didn't know where to turn. I figured Jesus has to be better than my knucklehead friends. So I turned to Jesus, not because I had an adoration for Jesus, but because simply I needed him to fix some stuff in my life. Jesus was my Ayanla Vinzant at first. Now, I think most of us come to Jesus for those reasons. We come to Jesus to fix something, to, to forgive us of our sins so that we don't go to hell or to improve our life. And you know what? I don't think that's a bad place to start. But it, it would be a terrible place if that's where your life stayed for years and years. Like, it's a one thing to meet somebody new and to be attracted to them. It's another thing to be with them for years and think that unless I maintained all that I had, they would leave me. So Jesus is calling us for this level of dedication. And this is really a bombshell of a statement. And I want to kind of focus in on the words that Jesus chose to use. So Jesus says we have to take up our cross and follow him. Now, the cross in American context is something that many people find comfortable, myself included. I have a cross at home. It's jewelry. It's adornment. It's on buildings. It's on flyers. It's not something that is offensive. To the original crowd, it would have been like Jesus saying, pick up your noose and follow me. It was like, it was grotesque. It was something that would have arrested their imagination. And so Jesus uses these words very intentionally because crucifixion was reserved for offenders who had rebelled against authority. So to take up your cross referred to the practice of forcing a condemned person to carry the cross to their own execution site. This showed that although they had rebelled against authority in the past, they were now so completely conquered that their last act in life would be to carry the instrument of their own demise to the place of their death. It was to show complete and utter submission. So a call to bear one's cross as following Jesus is a call to be as submitted to Christ as a condemned criminal was to the cross. Now, what does bearing your cross mean and what does it not mean? It definitely doesn't mean what people say it so often in society, like, oh, we all have our own cross to bear. Like, your job is bad, you, you can't do remote 
more than one day a week. We all have our cross to bear. <laughs> this is not what Jesus was talking about. And this is not what his crowd would have heard him to say. It is the deliberate, willful surrender of one's life every single day to Jesus. Quite plainly, picking up your cross is giving up life on your own terms. If you're struggling to apply this to your life, this is what it means. Picking up your cross every single morning is an intentional act to give up control of life on your own terms. You know, if I'm being perfectly honest, um, as I thought about today's message, um, these are not the messages that are the easiest to preach. You know, if I ever preach a message like on anxiety and tell people not to worry because God loves you more than the, the birds of the field and he knows every single hair on your head, th those are easy messages to preach. But messages today are, are more of a tough sell. You want to follow Jesus? Give up control of your life. And my own struggle is that I want you to love Jesus and the real Jesus, not the bootleg Jesus. I don't want us to have an altered experience of who Jesus is. And so we've been going very slowly through this one passage of Scripture to let Jesus tell us who he is um, and so that we could hear from him. When I was like a junior in high school, uh, I went to basketball camp. And every single morning, one of my friends in basketball camp would put his orange juice on the table, then go and get his breakfast. And every single morning, as soon as he would do that, someone would drink half of his orange juice and then pour milk in the other half of it. So then every single day, it wasn't me, uh, every single, but I did laugh. Every single day, we would all just be sitting at the table, like, eager for him to take his first sip of orange juice, and he would be eating his food. We'd all be talking. He would take a sip and, like, yo, does this orange juice taste weird? I'm like, I would take mine. Like, not nah, mine tastes fine, man. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And then, like, by that Friday, he had stopped getting orange juice. He was like, I'm not ever drinking orange juice ever again. Here's the thing. He gave up on something that was not the real version of it. I hope he's not traumatized by <laughs> what we did to him in that, that, those five days in basketball camp. But here's the thing. We've been, we've been fed a version of Jesus that is an altered version of it. The altered version of Jesus is not 100% orange juice. It's a mixture. It's a mixture that allows us to be in control of our lives. And so I don't know most of your stories in this room. And many of you don't know who I am beyond having seen me on a stage. But for like 15 minutes, I want to explain and explore what this looks like in your life today. And I want you to trust me just for like 15 minutes that normally I would love to talk about something that is a little lighter and easier for us to digest. But I don't want to alter the version of Jesus for you. So I have a couple of implications that I want us to be considering. First and foremost, don't settle for the American consumeristic Jesus. The American consumeristic Jesus exists for you, on your terms, at your pace, for your good. That's Johnny Christ. That's Jethro Christ. That ain't Jesus Christ. I read this quote. And it highlighted the distinction between what the world tells us and what Jesus is telling us here in this verse. I'll just read it. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. The world says, love yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, be true to you. 
Jesus says, be true to me. Really following Jesus in your life truly means having a Copernican revolution. Back in the day, um, up until the time of Copernicus, this one scientist, everyone thought that the, that the world revolved around the earth. And then this dude, Copernicus, comes around and says, no, actually, the reason we have seasons, the reasons we have days and nights, the reason is not because everything is revolving around us, but we are revolving around the sun. And after this Copernican revolution, everything changed. Science changed. The way that we approach life changed because then we realized that our lives, our existence was dependent on the sun, something outside of us. And what Jesus is inviting us to is a personal Copernican revolution that you start to see your life being dislodged and displaced from the center of the universe. And you realize that the son of God is at the center of the universe. And your life and the seasons of your life are not dependent on you, but dependent on him. Now, one of the things that's so fascinating about Jesus is that Jesus was extremely approachable. Anybody could come to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners and people from Staten Island, anybody <laughs> could make their way to Jesus. But Jesus was so inflexible. Nobody came to Jesus on their terms. You know, I mentioned this last service, and it's a scripture that I still don't fully understand. And I don't think you're going to fully understand it either, but I think it shows the radical nature of what Jesus is telling us. There's a scripture where someone comes to Jesus and they say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first, let me bury my father. Now, in ancient Jewish tradition, it was an honorable thing, and it was an expected thing that the eldest child would bury their father. Everybody would have agreed that this is good. Jesus says, don't. Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. People were just so blown away and saying, Jesus, what does this mean? And again, I don't have the full answer of what it means, but what I, I know what it doesn't mean. Jesus was trying to solidify in our imagination that what it means to follow him is not following him as a consumer. Where you go about your walk with God on your own terms. Now, we've already acknowledged that if you and I have a valuable opportunity, then unless we insist on it being on our own terms and to follow Jesus means that he is trying to uproot us from the center of our own lives, and he's telling us to come on his terms. Now, I know this is scary. Lord knows this is scary for me when I consider what this means. But I don't want us settling for the American consumeristic Jesus. The consumeristic Jesus will let you remain at the center. He'll just want to make your life just a little bit better, and he'll, he'll want to make you just a little bit nicer version of you. That's not Jesus. You know, years ago, I was with some friends from Renaissance, and uh, a different friend of mine um, promised us Knicks tickets. And so a bunch of us got together for this Knicks game, and it sounded like a little too good to be true that we had like these seats in this like lower level for like 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever it was. And then we got there, and the person with the scanner was scanning people, and it was making a nice little ding, like ding, ding. And they got to us, and it was like, er, 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 er. And then when we got the tickets in the light, after we realized that they were fake, we were like, yo, they didn't even spell stuff correctly. <laughs> the game was for the New York Kicks, not the New York Knicks. I'm like, bro, they didn't even, it's a different color. It's not even blue and orange. Like, how did you believe it? And here's what it was. We didn't actually take the time to sit down and read what these tickets were. We didn't actually evaluate it to make sure it was good. And listen, since we got fake tickets, we had no access. If you want real access to God, 
If you want real access to purpose, if you want real access to a mission in your life, if you want real access to deep forgiveness, if you want real access to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we can't go about it the bootleg way. We're going to come in on his way and his way alone. Now, here's why this is so important that I want you to hear this. Jesus is not inviting us to do something that he himself has not already done. Jesus laid down his life for us. He is not the one that lords his leadership over us. He is our suffering servant. He is the one who went to the cross. He knows the pain of what it feels like to actually pick up your own cross because he actually did do it. He's not asking you and me to do something he hasn't done, but he is asking us to trust us. He's asking us to trust him, to trust him just enough to relinquish this control we have in our lives to him. Now, I want to be really clear about this, what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that you turn neurotic and you're so afraid that every single decision is now a whole prayer call. Like, where you want to go to brunch today? Choose it. Go for it. Go crazy. You want Mexican for brunch? Have a good time. Some people look at the scripture and they become afraid, and now they start to navigate their life based on how well am I picking up my cross. And they're trying to control how much they lay down control. God gives us freedom and limitations. God gives us freedom and limitations. In the Garden of Eden, God said, you can eat from anything, just don't eat from these trees, right? And in the areas that God has given us freedom, if you should take this job or that job, pick one. But in the areas where God gives us limitations, that we would pick up our cross, we would follow him. That's number one. Number two, control over your life is a myth. Control over your life is a bedtime story that I like to read to myself every single night. It's a myth. You don't have control over your life. Many of you know exactly how real that is because you've gotten that phone call when life was great. That phone call that came out of left field, that conversation that came out of left field, and it changed everything about your life. Your life hasn't been the same. Now, here's what James says in James 4. He says, come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, why does James go so hard in that scripture? Um, and why do I believe so firmly that control of your life is a myth? Because we tell ourselves if we had certain conditions in place, we would do certain things. And over, over and over again in our life, things happen and we still don't do those things. Ultimately, what Jesus is trying to dislodge from us is not just a willingness, but also an awareness that control of our life is, is a myth. Now, this is also for the good things in your life. All of you who are like disgruntled about a job or relationship stuff not working out, you're one yes away from your life changing. You're one yes away from your life completely changing. You don't know when that yes is. There's a story about two young women. They were listening to a preacher, and these two women went off to a city for, for college and a master's degree. They listened to a preacher give this impassioned plea for people to lay down their lives and to follow Jesus on the mission field. These two women were so compelled that they called their parents that day and said, we are leaving school and we're going to go overseas to the mission field. The parents were not too pleased. 
They came over to the preacher and said, I don't know what fanaticism you're filling their brains with, but if they leave their master's program right now, they're not going to have any job security in life just to kind of give it away now, and they're going to ruin the direction of their life. The preacher said this to him. He said, you want them to have some security? We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. Someday, a trap door is going to open up under every single one of us, and we will fall through it. And either there will be millions and millions of miles of nothing, or else there will be the everlasting arms of God. And you want them to get a master's degree to give them a little security. Now, I get it. I got degrees. I got the student loans to show for that. There's nothing wrong with degrees. But we look to stuff to give us security and control, and it can't do that. You look to a relationship or a job or whatever, a bank account, to give you control, and it can't do any of that. Last week during the benediction, Lester, Pastor Lester read a quote from uh, another missionary who said these words, he or she is no fool who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. You're not a fool if you give up the things that you can't control anyway to gain life with Christ that you cannot lose. Lastly, we, need to, we have to decide daily to actually turn over control in our lives. Every morning there's new mercies for you and there's also a new mandate. Every single day Jesus tells us, if anyone would follow me, would want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, this emphasis on daily is a necessary distinction because every single morning, you and I need the intentional act of turning over the control of our day to Jesus. Now, this does not have to be deep. Discipleship is as you go. This doesn't mean you don't leave your house until you get a word from God about what you should do. Go to work, go to school. As you go, as you go throughout your life, it is this awareness that our lives are not meant to be lived on our own terms, but we're following Jesus. Now, if you and I are going to experience real life in Jesus, if we're going to experience what it means to be a disciple, the fullness of what Jesus is offering to us, we need to actually let go of control of our lives on a daily basis. This is what it means to pick up our cross. Now, practically speaking, I've mentioned this before. Decades ago, when I first became a Christian in my 20s, uh, I was really struggling with pornography, and I didn't know how to stop. I bought a couple of books and tried to, you know, get out of it on my own, and I'll never forget going to a Bible study, and the preacher uh, pulled out a couple of scriptures. The first one was on confession, and the second one was on this concept called radical amputation. Confession, he basically read the scripture, if anyone of you is trapped in a sin, confess your sins one to another, and I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> the second one was about if any of you, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And basically, the principle in Scripture that Jesus says is radical amputation. If there's something in your life that is driving you away from him, cut it off. And Jesus says these two, like, really, the Scripture says these two really radical things. And for months and months, I was just like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book again, and hopefully that does the trick. And I was trying to do life on my own terms. And listen, it didn't work. I had zero life in Jesus because I was willing to give a sacrifice for Jesus. Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it can produce no fruit. On the other side of picking up your cross is life, but make no mistake about it, we will never find real life in Jesus with the bootleg Jesus that allows you to stay, to, uh, stay in control on your life. And this is not something for me for decades ago. This is also something for me 
right now. Uh, I'll never forget years ago, I was truly, truly, truly filled with rage at all of the shootings that were happening, unarmed black men being murdered over and over again, and I was filled to the brim with rage. I'll never forget reading the scripture where Jesus says, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. I was like, Jesus, Papa, I'm not doing that. Zero percent chance I'm praying for them. Zero. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Over the last number of years, I've realized that Jordan Rice, like everybody else, will struggle to lay down their will to the will of Jesus, especially when it doesn't make sense to you. Many of us think to ourselves, I will follow Jesus so long as it can make sense to me, and that's not following Jesus. What it means to follow him is that we would lay down the direction of our life even when we don't understand it. You know, one of the cornerstones scriptures in the Bible about what it means to actually just have faith is Genesis 15 with a man named Abraham. God tells Abraham, Abraham, go to a place that I will show you. Leave your family, leave your security, leave your job, leave your 401k, leave and I will show you the place. The call of faith was for Abraham to be obedient to leave even though he didn't know where he was going. The journey of faith oftentimes mirrors what we see in Genesis 15, that to pick up your cross, to turn over the control of your lives does not mean that you understand where the next step is going to take you. You only know that this is where faith is telling you to go. This is where Jesus is pointing us to. And so uh, today we're going to have some baptisms to celebrate this act of learning to let go of control of our lives. And it's really supposed to be the first act of obedience after you came to faith in, in Christ and some of you still have questions and concerns about what it means for you to be baptized. And I do not want anybody to feel guilt or pressure on what I'm about to say. But we're going to have a couple people get baptized. And I also want to open up the floor for anybody who's been following Jesus for a long time and you've never made the decision to publicly get baptized. Today could be a phenomenal day for you to say, Jesus, I turned over the control of my life, my reputation, how people will see me in pursuit of you. And so I want to end today with an encouragement. Uh, this summer, my wife and I um, went on a, a dream trip to Greece um, to celebrate 10 years. And um, we ended up in Athens toward the end of the trip. And I'm a big history nerd. And the one thing I truly wanted to do above all things in Greece was to go see the Parthenon at the Acropolis. And it's this ancient fixture that's been there for thousands of years and whenever we go to a place like this, a place that I'm not coming back to anytime soon, generally speaking, I like to do a tour because there's a tour guide who can show me stuff that I'm not aware of. But when we first started this tour, I was like upset because the lady was just taking so long. And I'm like, yo, I just want to hurry up and get to the top. You're like stopping every 25 yards to talk about something else. And halfway up the mountain to the Parthenon, it clicked for me. There was all of these details that she was showing us that by the time we got to the top, I would have never been able to appreciate it the way I would have if I would have gone on my own pace on my own terms, just rushing up the mountain to beat the crowd. She had been up there before. She knew where to stop and where to pause. She knew I didn't know. Listen, turning over control to Jesus in your life, there are things that God wants to show you. There are things that God wants to do in your life. 
There's a fullness that God wants to bring in your life that will come when you lay down control of your life and not a second before. So what is the invitation from Jesus to you today? Not for 20 years from now, but what is the invitation today? How do you, what does it look like for you today to pick up your cross? What does it look like for you today to turn over the control of your life to Jesus? The control that you don't have anyway. You know, I think we need community for that. I think we really desperately need community for that in your DNA groups and in your growth groups. I hope and pray that you're praying together about the difficulty of what it means to turn over the control of your life to Jesus and that you're encouraging each other. And Lord knows we need God's help to, do, to bring us there as well. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord, you invite us to pick up our cross every single day and to follow you. You know the difficulties and the challenges and the reservations we have to that. Jesus, I pray that we would see you, our merciful Savior, who is attempting to free us from this illusion of control and to set us on a course of life with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to take the steps we need to take today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.